Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. Welcome back to another episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. I'm your host, Zach Bitter, and today I have a guest interview episode for you. So today's guests, Evan and Jana, wanted to come on the show and chat a bit about their experience with regenerative agriculture. This is a topic personally I'm really interested in. In fact, if you've been listening to the show for quite some time, you'll probably remember done a few deep dives with it. We had some of the big players in the regenerative agriculture movement on the show in the past, including Alan Savory, Joel Salatin, uh, the folks from White Oaks Pasture, Bobby Gills, who works with uh, Alan Savory. And we just looked at this type of uh, approach and kind of the holistic nature of it, where it maybe fits, what it can do. Uh, for the health of the planet and just the health of agriculture as a whole. You know, whether it's something that is scalable is obviously a big question. And at the moment, I believe it makes up a very small percentage, like maybe like 1% of animal agriculture. But with that said, I think it's still kind of a fun topic and an interesting way to hear about. And when I had, I think it's Bobby Gill on he had mentioned, or I, I, we asked him about what he thought would be something that would help really kind of move more people or more interest into something like regenerative agriculture or even agriculture as a whole or ranching as a whole. Because uh, the interesting thing about that profession is, is it's aging. There's a lot of uh, it's, it's an older average population. When you look at just like jobs that are done, like the average age, like ranching and agriculture is, is quite old. So it's like, who's going to step up from the more youthful side of the range and kind of take the reins of these sort of things as we move forward into the future. And one thing Bobby mentioned was that, um, he thought it would be interesting, like, if there would be like influencers and celebrities and things like that, that would kind of jump in and say, Hey, this is something that a lifestyle that's cool. And I want to share it. I want to participate in it. And that's what would get enough eyeballs on it to drive kind of the, the consumer interest in this type of a product approach. Uh, so Jana and Evan kind of represent that they're like the, maybe the first people that I've seen that have uh, really kind of dove into this, not, not just supporting it. Uh, those folks are out there for sure, but getting into it where they are actually getting involved with the entire supply chain involved around. So I really wanted to know what that meant and how that actually plays out. Like, how do you actually decide one day, hey, I want to be a player in the regenerative agriculture space, even though I don't have any background in agriculture. What is the process for that? Is is it like a normal like entrepreneurial business or something like that? Or like what what's the ins and out there? So we talked a bit about that as well as just the whole approach, as well as a few other uh, topics that we covered uh, Evan and Jana are no strangers to the health and fitness uh, community. So I wanted to hear kind of about their complete human approach, which regenerative agriculture is only one piece of. So I wanted to hear kind of the rest of that story, how that kind of comes comes complete uh, with what they're, what they're trying to do. And it was a fun chat. So that's this episode. For those of you interested about what's kind of coming up this month, I have a few podcasts scheduled for August to record. I'm going to be doing a bit of a dive into continuous glucose monitors this month. So I have a couple guests, Kara Collier, and after Kara, I have Taylor Sittler. Kara and Taylor are both uh, work with, and Kara's a dietitian with uh, 
um, CGM that works with CGMs and uh, Taylor is with Levels. So it'll be interesting to talk to those two and find out kind of what they think the application is with this outside of what they've traditionally been used for now that there are some companies that are going to be giving opportunities for people to access these devices, these continuous glucose monitors versus having to get like a doctor's prescription to be able to use one. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see what people do with this and what kind of data gets collected. And I want to know kind of specifically what they're seeing in terms of individual responses to certain foods with this, because they're certainly sitting on a big data set as well as just where they think the application is with this in terms of people personalizing their health or having a little bit more of a detailed look inside at a 24 seven basis versus kind of the standard approach where, you know, you can go in and get a blood draw and find out what your, what your fasting glucose levels are. You can find, you can get kind of a snapshot of like where they've been averaging over the past three months and things like that. But a much more detailed look at this, I think is really interesting. And I'll also be curious about where the application here is with sport. So uh, I remember I first got interested in continuous glucose monitors and just this topic as a whole when I had uh, Dr. Mark Bubbs on. Dr. Mark Bubbs has a book called Peak and uh, he actually references a, a study that was done a while ago where they looked at 100 kilometer racers and they looked at kind of professionals as well as uh, hobbyists within that distance to see like what the difference was with their fueling strategy as well as the response to that and you know whether just uh, the big question would be uh, hitting glucose in order to keep it elevated and not crashing versus what they ultimately saw in some of that which was like very high glucose numbers in some cases which was maybe getting exasperated by continually fueling uh, really interesting stuff either way so I'm gonna be curious to talk to those two about that also coming on between those two guests is Alan Argon. Alan has been in the health and fitness space for quite some time, and he is a big proponent of metabolic flexibility in the sense of being able to sort of take your uh, take your food groups and and organize them in a way that's going to work for you. As I guess is maybe the way to say it. So. He is not necessarily like hardlining into like prioritize carbohydrates, prioritize fats, prioritize this. He's more like, well, let's find out what works for you and how they fit within the framework of your lifestyle. And I want to hear about just some of the experiences he's had with both clients as well as just people he's talked to, the research and everything in terms of like where people are leaning when they're allowed or able to kind of fill those gaps with things they prefer or things that they personally find useful, satiating, and uh, able to stay consistent with. So Alan will be a fun chat. Um, I also have a episode coming up that I'm going to schedule it with Logan Delgado. So for those of you who are listening earlier, I think I made an announcement actually. I was going to record with Logan and Kara Collier during KetoCon and I actually ended up getting sick on one of the days that KetoCon was occurring. So I wasn't able to go to that day and that was the day I was going to record with Logan and Kara. So uh, thankfully they were very generous in being willing to come on the show with me at a later date. So um, I'll get Logan scheduled. He'll likely be in August as well. And that will be kind of the guest interviews that'll be coming up in the future. I'll also be doing some solo episodes that are topic and question based. So if you have topics or questions you'd like me to touch on in a future episode, feel free to shoot me a note either at hpopodcast at gmail.com or on one of my social media channels. 
The major ones that uh, I'm checking on more frequently are going to be Instagram, which is at Zach Bitter, Twitter at ZBitter, and then Facebook at ZBitter Endurance. Um, that is all I got with the guest stuff and the solo episodes coming up. If uh, you're interested in supporting the show, you can get access to audio free and early release podcast episodes by joining the show's Patreon page. The show's Patreon page can be accessed on the show landing page, which is just zackbitter.com forward slash HPO. If you want to support the show, but not through Patreon, if Patreon is not your thing, you can do one-time donations at zackbitter.com forward slash HPO, which also includes crypto donations if that's your thing. So that's another option. Also, if you want to support the show, but monetarily isn't the move for you personally, that's totally fine. It can go a long ways if you like, share, and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite listening platform, whether that be YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you play your podcasts on. And then share it with your friends and family when you find an episode you like. It helps me grow the show and goes a long way as well. So for those of you who've already done that, thank you very much. Finally, another option to support the show is if one of the show sponsors happens to have a product that you would like to try out, You can let them know that you heard of them and came to them through this podcast. The episode and podcast sponsors can be found on the show notes as well as the sponsor landing page, which is just zackbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. This episode's sponsors include Optimal Carnivore and Buy Optimizer's Blood Sugar Breakthrough. Bioptimizer's Blood Sugar Breakthrough is designed to help you control blood sugar fluctuations. When you take in a lot of carbs too quickly, without much fiber or fat to slow down absorption, you could experience what we call a sugar crash. One solution to this roller coaster is to reduce your intake of processed carbohydrates and make sure you eat fat, protein, fiber, and greens at most meals. But none of us are perfect. We all cheat sometimes, so it just makes sense to have a way to maintain healthy blood sugar day in, day out, even if you have an off day. This easy-to-take supplement is the result of numerous tests to find the absolute best formula for maintaining healthy blood sugar. In fact, Bioptimizers went through five different formulations before landing on this one. For an exclusive offer for my listeners, just go to bloodsugarbreakthrough.health forward slash human and save 10% with the code human10 to try blood sugar breakthrough. If you use this link, the discount will automatically apply and that's at bloodsugarbreakthrough.health forward slash human promo code human10. Also, if you are not satisfied, Bioptimizer stands behind their 365 day 100% money back guarantee. Also supporting this episode are my friends at Optimal Carnivore. Organ meats are some of the most nutrient-dense foods on the planet. Despite their benefits, sometimes it can be difficult to incorporate them into your diet. Optimal Carnivore aims at making these nutrients easier to access with their products, which include grass-fed organ complex, bone marrow complex, and grass-fed beef liver. These products work great for busy people who are traveling or as they develop an appreciation for organ meats. Their grass-fed organ complex has nine different organs, including beef liver, brain, thymus, heart, kidney, spleen, pancreas, lung, and gallbladder. Bone marrow complex contains the same compounds as bone broth. 
Their products are 100% grass-fed and grass-finished and free of hormones, pesticides, antibiotics, and GMOs. They also plant one tree for every product sold. If interested, you can visit amazon.com forward slash optimal carnivore and use the code human save 10. That's human save one zero for 10% off your next order. As always, all HPO sponsors links discounts can be found by visiting the show sponsor page at zackbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. All right. Welcome back to another episode of the human performance outliers podcast. I am here with two guests today, Evan and Jana. And I am stoked to talk to both of you for a variety of reasons. One is you both have a lot of interests seemingly and have done a lot of different things. So in terms of kind of the topics I've covered on this podcast, I feel like the both of you have touched on them or engaged with them and have won them or whatever you want to call it. Uh, so I'm excited to kind of hear from, hear from the both of you and maybe focus in on a bigger topic that's been a while since I've talked about on the podcast, but very much have in the past, which is regenerative agriculture. But thanks to both of you for taking some time out of your day and coming on the show. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks, Zach. Thank you. Yeah. And maybe just for our listeners who are maybe a little less familiar, uh, with kind of your backgrounds, if we could just maybe do like a few bullet points of kind of like how you got into health and fitness, and then ultimately into kind of what you guys are doing today and trying to build like this kind of complete human concept. Sure. Ladies first. Okay. I guess I'll start. Um, so I've been in the health and wellness industry for a long time, but I actually originally started off as a pharmaceutical rep. Um, so I was working in San Diego with Eli Lilly, um, selling Cialis to all the doctors around town. And it was, it was quite an adventure, but, um, during that process, I was actually getting very ill and sick. I, I came from the bodybuilding space. And so I was competing and, you know, doing everything I could physically to look a certain way. And I actually started experiencing some, experiencing some health issues that were pretty detrimental and held me back a lot. So once I started doing more research on, you know, food and nutrition and stuff, I really got inspired to um, kind of move away from my, my career, which was pharma into more, how do I heal myself? in a more, um, holistic manner. And so I worked with a couple doctors and, you know, did a lot of research and I really started dedicating my life to how I can optimize myself in all ways, you know, through, um, you know, lifestyle, nutrition, food, mindset, so many of those things. And so throughout that process, I was sharing my journey online and, um, you know, on, on how I was getting healthier and my social media started growing pretty fast, which was really exciting and weird just because that was not really my intention. It was just, something I was sharing, I guess people were resonating with it. And, you know, I've worked with a lot of like health and wellness brands and kind of, um, have been in the industry for a long time, which has landed me a couple, a couple magazine covers, which was super exciting. But, you know, my, my whole career seems so focused on this outside aesthetic, which I wasn't really, um, inspired by anymore. I was, I really just wanted to focus on what is true health. Um, so, Evan and I kind of just, you know, combined forces here and, you know, we started multiple companies, but this is kind of why regenerative agriculture was so exciting for us is just because we know this is the future of where it needs to go, not only for planetary health, but each of what each of us individually for our physical health. Um, so that, that's like a little bit more of my backstory. Hopefully I touched on all the important parts, but Evan, you want to jump in? Yeah. Uh, so I kind of consider myself one of the original biohackers, really as a representation of what my grandparents went through. And 
in the early 80s, my grandfather was diagnosed with Parkinson's and Alzheimer's, which was compounded by years and years and years of working around lead paint and lead gas because he owned a painting company and a gas station. And so this was at a time where the uh, modern Western complex, uh, medical complex, was just throwing every pharmaceutical atom that he could. It was this medication to deal with this and then this medication to deal with the symptoms or the, you know, the, uh, the issues with that medication. So it was like the suitcase worth of pills. And my grandmother was just not content to to watch him just go downhill. And so she really became that original biohacker, like reaching out to, you know, natural paths and like doctors who had like newsletters long before there was ever an Internet. So I literally watched her just give him supplements and do cryotherapy and chelation therapy and everything that she did to promote health and wellness with him. She promoted with the rest of the family. And, and so I grew up kind of with this ideology that modern Western medicine was failing us all. And it was up to us to really optimize our own health and wellness. Uh, and so, you know, even though I kind of had a couple different jobs and you know, played professional sports and really went the corporate America route, I found myself coming back to it. And so working with a company called KD Pharma, which is the largest global manufacturer of Omega products, I just really was, you know, re-inspired to get back into this world of health and wellness and looking at how supplements and lifestyle and mindset and all the things that Jana touched on really impact that journey towards optimal health and wellness. So when we met, it was really just kind of like this immediate energetic connection, like, hey, we are on the same boat, you know, fighting for the same things. How do we do Marvel team up here and, and kind of come up with a bet, you know, the best way to educate and inspire healthier people for a healthier planet? So the origins of Complete Human, which is kind of our parent organization, is just that. It's education and inspiration to get people to be healthier, not just for themselves, but for the world that we live in. And that, men that mentality really has driven us to recognize that we can be the healthiest individuals, you know, ever. We can eat right. We can exercise. We can do all the meditations and the yoga and all that stuff. But if we live in a toxic cesspool, it doesn't matter. Now, conversely, if we spend all of our time focusing on the environment, and ignore ourselves by eating, you know, you know, uh, fake meat or, you know, too many vegetables or all these things that we now know are unhealthy. Well, conversely, there's just that dysbiosis there. So the symbiotic nature of how we interact with, you know, with our world has kind of driven us to the place that we're at right now, which is, um, I think what we're going to talk about regenerative agriculture and a couple of businesses that we decided to uh, throw ourselves into as, as a means of trying to fix the planet. Awesome. Yeah, we may as well jump right into the regenerative agriculture side of things. I know we were chatting a little bit offline about it before we hit record. And uh, one thing I, I'll, I'll remind the listeners too, is if you go back in the catalog far enough, you'll, you'll see some regenerative agriculture topics that, uh, you know, I had a lot of fun chatting with and, you know, some of the big players in that world, like Joel Salatin, Alan Savory, and Bobby Gills have been guests on this podcast. So if you want to hear those and get like a primer on where regenerative agriculture was a few years ago or the goals they had then and just kind of the the 30,000 foot view so to speak those are good ones to kind of check in on and one of the things that I found really interesting I believe it was the Bobby Gill episode I kind of just asked him like what's next what's going to be the big mover for regenerative agriculture because I believe as it stood it made up maybe about one percent of animal agriculture at the time and he said really what it's going to take is it's going to take some like you know, notable people that have like a reasonable following to kind of jumpstart the movement enough, get people interested in it, and then ultimately give a big kind of signal boost for that type of uh, process so that other farmers or people who were, weren't previously interested in farming in any capacity all of a sudden decide, hey, this is something I'd be interested in doing. This is something I'd like to 
convert my farm towards or become a farmer versus trying to get out of it, which is what I think we've seen over the last couple of decades is this kind of fleeing from the small family farm towards big corporate farms and things like that. So what was it? I, I see you two kind of as maybe like a budding seed of that idea that Bobby shared. Uh, is that how did that kind of come to be? Well, it is random <laughs> because neither, <laughs> neither Evan and I grew up in the ranching business. I mean, this is something that um, was really new to us. And once we learned about how important this really is for the future of us, like as, as humans and as a planet, it was a no brainer for us to get involved. Yeah. And the origins of the story really is, is, is a good friend of ours. Who's really kind of been um, a, a silent minority in the regenerative agriculture space called us up one day and says, Hey, you guys want to do a documentary on regenerative ag? We're like, what the hell is regenerative agriculture? <laughs> um, so he said, let me data dump on you. So he sends us all of this content, including Alan Savory's TED Talk. So Jan and I spent a quite a bit of time really looking at the science behind it and, and kind of coming from dietary supplements, um, as, as well as other kind of institutional food products. We recognize that there's a lot of buzzwords that get thrown around out there as a way to make people feel better about their purchases instead of really focusing on the issues. So you know, from a high level, I'm like, is regenerative agriculture just another BS, you know, verification platform, which is designed to make us all feel better. Uh, but once we got into it, and once we really recognized, especially with what Alan has done, and some of the other pioneers in this space, it's like, not only is this legit, but this might be our last best hope to fix climate change. And it was pretty profound when you really dig into the science, which we'll talk a lot about in this podcast. There's a, a true understanding that we as human beings are responsible for everything that's wrong with our planet. But yet, if we go back to the way that we were a long time ago before the Industrial Revolution, we can also be responsible for everything that happens positively moving into the future. So we called him back, uh, you know, our buddy were like, hey, we don't want to just we don't want to do a documentary on this. We want to get involved. What's next? So he said, do you want to buy a USDA processing facility? Like, <laughs> sure. Sounds like a great idea. <laughs> Um, so we did, and we've cursed his name every day since then. <laughs> um, it, it, it's an interesting business. The, the meat business is fascinating. And, and one of the things that came out of it was just how undervalued the American rancher and farmer are, both in the perception of the average consumer and economically. So what we see from this value chain is something that's so inherently broken and can only be constructed by the U.S. government. And, and I don't mean that as a knock, but it's like, you know, farmers don't make any money. Ranchers don't make any money. They take their, their cow to an auction where the auction house makes a lot of money. Then that auction house processes that cow and sells it off to a retailer who then makes money. But then the commodities market drives the cost of that beef down so low so that the average consumer can afford it. So the only people really making money in that equation are like the auction house and maybe the retailer. The consumer has to pay a little bit more by way of taxes, which then go back to support the rancher or farmer who can't afford to actually live by just doing the job that they're doing. So you talked a lot about this exodus from the ranching and farming community. There's no other reason that someone would stay into it because it's economically not feasible. So with regenerative agriculture, one of the benefits so far beyond the health of the product, the health of the planet, is a way to create a, a model that allows ranchers and farmers to make a proper living and allows them the courtesy of being you know, elevated to the point that they should be simply because they are feeding us, right? Like, I, I love how we put Steve Jobs on a pedestal. Well, guess what? In the you know, Maslow's hierarchy of human needs, 
iPhone is not at the bottom. You know, <laughs> iPod is not at the bottom. Food, clothing, shelter is. So what why, do you mean? <laughs> yeah. So why is it that these captains of industry? And again, I, I have an iPhone, so I, I don't mean to knock him that much. But why have we not elevated the person who's responsible for feeding us to the position that we have someone who's responsible for creating, you know, distractions or, or things that are ultimately unhealthy? Yeah, no, that's really interesting stuff. And I think like you hit on some really good points where uh, I want to say, hopefully I'm remembering this right. I want to say like last I looked, the average rancher is maybe clearing like 15% for, for the, for its cattle when it can, in terms of what they're bringing back after that whole process that you mentioned. And when you think about it, like the, the person who is literally like caring for and managing the life cycle, the cow for like the majority, like probably like 90% or so of that, of that life cycle, if not more is, is really just taking a very small percentage of that. So at what point does it just get so frustrating that you're like, you know, this isn't sustainable. I can't just pass this down to my children and expect them to be able to make a life out of this. And, you know, someone comes in and offers to buy their ranch land and it's like kind of like a tough situation for them to be in, in terms of what they want to do and that sort of thing. So I think like the big, the big elephant in the room then becomes like direct to consumer type stuff. And is that kind of the side of uh, regenerative agriculture that you see to be kind of more productive for the farmer itself, where if they can get a setup where it's a little more direct versus all those steps you mentioned, they're going to able to, to clear a, a larger profit margin and make it more of a lucrative career that they can stay into it or that people will come into like yourselves that were previously probably not interested in that side of the, the economy. Well, and, and I'm glad you brought that up, uh, Zach, because I, I think that's one of the challenges that the average rancher has faced is they know that they can clear a larger gross margin by going consumer direct. But where they're running into that brick wall is, is that these are guys, you know, men, women, children who are out on the ranch all day long. They're feeding for, you know, they're taking care of these cows. They're feeding the cows. They're doing holistic management, where if you think about holistic management, you're moving those cattle almost daily. So now they're out there doing a hard physical job and then they're expected to come home at the end of the day and sit there and do like SEO or, you know, all of the competing with companies like a butcher box or, you know, some of these direct consumer uh, companies who are spending in excess of like five, $10 million a month in digital marketing. They're optimizing for 30 to 40,000 keywords. You know, they've got four to 500 pieces of digital content in the marketplace at any given time. How is that rancher ever supposed to compete with that? And so altruistically, they want to do that, but they're just finding that the only real profit in that consumer direct model really comes from the friends and family where I can sell a, you know, I can sell half a beef to my neighbor down the road or, you know, Uncle Clark is willing to buy X amount. So one of the things that we've really decided to focus on was that co-op of these ranchers is we want to be able to provide them with the same revenue source that they could get by going consumer direct, but without all of the oversight, the headache, all of the, you know, the digital know-how that they would need to be ultimately successful. So our model when we first bought this plant was we're going to do just that. We're going to pay our ranchers a premium well above what they're getting from the, the, the average commodities market. And then we're going to have them focus on what they do best. We're going to highlight them in the marketing that we do, but then we're going to be responsible for everything on the back end. So they don't have to worry about fulfillment and where to get dry ice and what boxes to use and what insulation to use and what influencers to hire and all of the things that are ultimately necessary to scale a consumer direct business. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. And is it, is it a, at this point in time, is it something where like 
the when like a rancher kind of reaches out for that sort of a setup they've already gotten into the regenerative process and their their farm is or the ranch is already kind of in that position or is this kind of like or is there a, a side of it where okay you have a traditional ranch you want to convert it to regenerative so you can take advantage of this type of a setup is that a piece of the puzzle that you're including too or is that still something that uh the the rancher kind of has to figure out or decide to take that leap on their own no, no. And, and, and I think that's really one of the challenges and the opportunities within the regenerative space right now. Let's look at organic as kind of that that alt, that other model is if you want to become an organic certified USDA, you know, organic certified person, you can't have any pesticides, any of those you know, negative inputs for three years. So you have to go through that cost differential of you know, going commodity to organic and cover that cost for three years before you're able to ultimately uh, manifest the economic benefit of that. Regenerative is quite a bit different. We are meeting these producers right where they're at. Like if you tell me you want to, you know, you want to become regenerative, our teams are going to go out there. We're going to work with you. We're going to help you kind of devise these plans. We're going to put you on a path to being fully regenerative, but recognize that the effort is what is going to drive this movement initially. So if we tell someone they have to be three years regenerative before we take their beef, we've ultimately just killed that market. So the onerous is on us. And one of the things that we've been really excited about is to bear the financial burden of helping these producers transition and know that we're going to cover all of those upfront costs and we're going to buy those beef, uh, you know, those bison, those lamb, those hogs, all of those different, uh, you know, animals simply by getting someone into the program and helping them move further and further down the chain. Now, some of the incentives that we've put in place is, is that we will pay more in year three, four, five, as you know, a hundred percent of their land becomes regenerative. But you know, if you can commit 10 to 15% of your land right out of the gate to being regenerative, we're going to work with you and we're going to put you on a path to, you know, to being a fully regenerative, uh, you know, rancher or farmer. Awesome. Can you tell me a little bit about just like what the process looks like in terms of converting a ranch to regenerative? Because I know this is kind of like a, that you have like these, like, I mean, everything builds on itself, right? So you have like these like layers essentially that the system's feeding into itself. Is there, is it something where they can say like, I'm going to start with 10% of my land and convert that fully to regenerative? Or is it something like I need to get my entire land this level or this layer in place before I move on to the second layer, that sort of thing? No, no. It, you know, it can really begin with just a small section of land. And if we use beef as kind of the, you know, the, the, the example of this one is, you know, I'm going to take, I'm going to take 10% of my herd and now I'm going to holistically manage them. We're going to do planned grazing throughout my, my piece of property. And, you know, th that's going to be a start. And, and the nice thing about that is, is the economic burden doesn't fall solely on what that rancher is doing in regenerative. If he's got a commodity cash crop, you know, he can still sell that off to auction and, and make some money. But we're going to say, let's take 10% and let's really understand how your land works with regenerative. You know, let's really focus on, you know, understanding the data, getting baselines, getting soil samples and water infiltration tests, and really starting to create a plan that, you know, year one is 10%, maybe year two is 30%, maybe year three, you know, is, is 50%. But we ultimately want to be moving our producers down the road of being 100% regenerative, but that doesn't happen overnight. And, and that's really, I think, what a lot of producers are afraid of is this, oh, for, for me to be accepted in this, like organic, I have to do 100% overnight. And that's a scary proposition for someone who, as you pointed out, Zach, might only be making 15% gross margin on all of their efforts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. And I think that kind of, that highlights the, 
the areas that are sort of as, as, as grand as it kind of sometimes seems that they're set up to make a transition there to have a ranch in place. That's their business. That's their lifestyle. You know, they're actually quite a bit further along than say trying to convert some land that's been decertified into like ranch land or something like that, which kind of like brings me to my next question. I think one thing that I talked to Alan Savory a fair bit about was just what he saw within the potential of turning unusable land into usable land through regenerative agriculture. And he had, you know, a lot of his, his programs were looked at places like they went over into like desert areas in Africa and actually converted them into like usable ranch land and stuff like that. So is that something that is either in your current setup or something that is what you're, that you're going to maybe implement down the road is how do we actually open up the available land for something like this? So the mission of regenerative pastures is to help convert 20% of the 900 million agronomic acres in the U.S. to regenerative in the next five years. A large chunk of that is what we would consider that BLM land, especially in kind of the Western states. And so much of that has already been desertified. I mean, if you look at a topographical map or even just a satellite image of the United States, you can see how dry that whole Western portion is. We've seen what's happened with the Colorado River and, and you know, states like Arizona and, you know, New Mexico and actually not New Mexico, but like California, Nevada are, are dry. And, it, and it's funny, like how many millions of people are moving a year to like Phoenix or Las mm-hmm. Vegas? I'm like, there's no water there. Like, are, yeah. are you guys are you guys batshit crazy? Um, but if, if we really follow the tenets of regenerative, of holistic management, there is a profound opportunity to reverse that desertification in some of those areas. Um, some of them. It might take decades, if not more, but there are certain areas, you know, like Wyoming, Montana, Colorado, um, you know, uh, New Mexico that really have a unique opportunity just by increasing the amount of, of animals on those areas, on those, you know, on that land, and then moving them through in a holistic management really gives us that amazing opportunity to, to fix some of these issues. Um, but unfortunately, we are headed in the wrong direction, and that's building more houses, you know, paving more, you know, throwing down more concrete, all of these things that increase, um, you know, or rapidly accelerate climate change, we have to be going in the other direction. It's more animals, less building, you know, it's, that's, we are unfortunately headed in the wrong direction. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, one thing that I've always thought about that I thought was really interesting, and some of this was kind of spurred on by my background, I was originally a teacher in Wisconsin before, uh, kind of jumping into like endurance sport and things like that. And one of the schools I was at before I did that was like a project-based school. And, you know, they had a lot of opportunities to do like just different ways of educating. So there's a big emphasis put on like, you know, active learning versus sitting in a desk and kind of like going through the curriculum, like step-by-step. And, you know, they, at one point they had a pretty big garden set up in the back. And I think their long-term plan was to kind of keep building that out to be more than just like a vegetable garden. But when I saw that, I was thinking, it's like, we have like how many school districts in this country and, you know, most of them have like land outside of the building itself. I granted some of its parking lots and football and soccer fields and baseball fields and things like that. But how cool would it be if like you started from kind of like the foundation where, you know, where the kids are learning and embedding their education into outdoor work with gardening and farming and things like that. Cause there's just so much cross-curricular educating that can be done with that process and kind of making them aware of that food system, learning it and probably opening a huge door of potential people that would maybe want to make a career out of that versus 
a generation, well, at this point, multiple generations of people who just assume I show up to the grocery store, I grab the package, I put it in my cart, I give my money in there and that's that. And when I hear people talk about like how un, un like how regenerative agriculture or, you know, even just like small scale isn't a viable option, I think, well, maybe if we're not trying, it isn't, but we got, I think there's a little bit of room of creativity there if we want to really open the door and embed it into the education system. That's such a good point. Uh, it's a and starting young too in schools is brilliant. Yeah. And, and, and I think, you know, to expand on that, like this, this is one of those things where if we're now connected to our food supply and we understand what it takes to grow a tomato or what it takes to grow a vegetable, I think we have a healthier respect for that food. And, and now it's so easy, as you pointed out, to go to the grocery store and buy a cheap bag of potato or potato chips. And, you know, I, I get those empty calories. I get no nutritional value from that. So our food system has been so broken, which leads to not only the problems that we're seeing in traditional or conventional agriculture, but also with the health crisis that we're facing. Like mm -hmm. we get kids involved in soil health and food production early on. What does that do to our understanding of our food system and, and the health of food and what, why we should be eating certain things over other things? It's like, yeah, everybody would love to sit around and, you know, eat potato chips all day long and have a six pack, but it's just not viable. So that connection to our food source is probably the best thing that we can do to help save us as a species. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think the value of like a regenerative setup in like the education system too, is like, you just get so much diversity at schools with, with, this, with the students and what their interests are and what their tolerances are and everything. So you have like a little bit of everything. So not every student is going to want to be involved in like the processing side of meat or the planting of the tomatoes or you know, any of these pieces to the, 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 the puzzle that is regenerative agriculture, but there will be some. And, mm -hmm. you know, that just gives, I think, ownership to individuals at their interests. So when you just kind of say, hey, this is the whole process, what part do you want to like explore more, the kids are going to find that spot. And then um, having a having knowledge of the whole process is good, but the actual hands on doing of it can be very kind of uh, separated into their interests and separated into what they're what they can tolerate or not tolerate and that sort of thing. And, and then who knows, like some, I'm sure a lot of students would ultimately say, hey, this is what I want to do. I want nothing to do with the other one. And then by the time they're done with school, they've been fully into the opposite side of the spectrum in terms of what they <laughs> thought they would end up enjoying. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, anytime, anytime there's an opportunity to show kids the, 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 the actual full cycle food spectrum and get them active while learning and teaching them and letting them actually see these things versus like pretending they know or just completely not knowing and not caring is a huge win on so many fronts. It just seems like it'd be crazy not to have some sort of setup like that or some sort of initiative to incentivize it anyway. Absolutely. It gives them an opportunity. And I guarantee you ask a couple of them, where does food come from? Like, oh, the grocery store. Yeah. It's like, no, actually, it's a little bit more complex than that. I was just thinking, you know, we, we should all do something together and we could take like our two collective organizations. But I was like, we could do the bitter human initiative. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know launch this uh, worldwide is like teach, teach more and more kids about this. And, and it's funny, like we work with ranches all over the country that actually bring kids in and teach them this, but mm -hmm. it's, it's one of those like week long, weekend long, you know, curriculum type of things is like, what happens when you have to do this every single day or like five days a week at school? It's like that repetition is what's going to create the connection to the land, cre create the connection to the soil. You know, and at the end of the day, as, as Alan talks about, it's like, this is all about soil health, you know, 
you know, we can eat certain things for bio-optimization or for better health, but unless we take care of the soil and understand that that soil is, is the best defense that we have against climate change, against desertification, you know, we're, we're all up the creek without a paddle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's 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 really it's really interesting to kind of think about just the the ins and outs of all of it and and where we're at. And I think on top of it, we had this big pandemic with you know all my regenerative agriculture podcasts were prior to the pandemic. So I'm kind of curious, like what you've seen with that essentially kind of two years of some disruption and a good chunk of that quite large disruptions with things like supply chains, food availability and everything else when we have it all tied into this big kind of national, if not international size distribution network, what advantages does regenerative agriculture play in a world where there is potential food insecurity for large portions of the country if one thing goes wrong with the whole like grand scale system that we kind of have now? Well, you just hit the nail on the head, Zach. And and what COVID did was it showed us how many holes there are in our food supply system. It showed us how many holes there are in this, what we call the just-in-time food supply, right? And that's what America runs off of is this just-in-time food supply. So when we've got value chain disruptions or supply chain disruptions that are predicated on, you know, meat or, you know, other proteins coming in from foreign countries, and you've got thousands of ships, you know, just anchored off of the port of Long Beach trying to get a spot, you know, that's, that's actually food that people need to eat. So one of the things that regenerative agriculture should do is regionalize food production. This is not only important for what we would call domestic food security, but it's also important for the environmental component of this. Why do we need to ship a cow from New Zealand to the United States? You know, the amount of diesel that those giant shipping containers crank out is ridiculous. Like, Uh, There's an economic component, you know, GDPs for each country and agricultural exports. We certainly understand that. Right. But ultimately, if we prioritize the things that are most important, which is domestic food security, which is, you know, uh, environmental uh, change, all of those things really lean only to one solution. And that's let's produce domestically. Let's produce regionally. You know, we kind of we call it the local war concept. Right. It's like you should be eating food that pretty much comes from within a general area, right? And we kind of think back to like, go to like, you know, 16th century Europe or something like that. It's like before the refrigerator, which might actually be one of the worst inventions of all time for a number of reasons. But, you know, daily you would walk to the local market, you would engage with people socially, you would pick up healthy, fresh food, and you would do that on a consistent basis. So that movement pattern, that eating pattern, that social pattern all led to health outcomes that were so much better than where we're at today. So if we kind of think in that local VOR concept, we should be eating food that's produced regionally. Um, And that might not always be the case, but for the most part, we should be focused on that. Now, um, what what COVID has done is shown us that we are really at risk for, um, for supply chain interruptions. The other thing that we're really excited about in a very sad way, and I kind of hate to say this, is that the war in Russia and Ukraine has also shown us how dependent we are on foreign imports to even grow or raise the cattle that we're eating here in the United States. So all of these, you know, all of this grain that's coming over from Russia and Ukraine with those supply chain interruptions, it's actually focused, it's, it's actually creating an opportunity for ranchers to switch to regenerative simply because they don't have a choice. Yeah, that's a really good point. And you, you kind of preempted my next question because it's like on top of the whole pandemic situation, we're seeing like uh, a lot 
more international turbulence outside of just kind of proxy wars that like our generation has gotten a little more kind of accustomed to versus what previous generations saw on a all too frequent basis, which were, you know, two world wars, or at least, you know, like large scale things that would kind of disrupt stuff. And, you know, in my lifetime, it was like, the big message was always kind of like, if you have this interconnected economy internationally, it fixes a lot of that because if these countries are all dependent upon one another, then you have a situation where you don't necessarily want to attack a country who's providing X good for you or that they're going to ratchet up the, the taxes on your goods and services and try to make it hurt at the economy side versus the, the, the human life side. And, you know, I think what we end up seeing now when there's actually like movement on like, you know, Russia into Ukraine is that that doesn't necessarily play out that way. You know, we end up having these situations where it becomes very obvious to the average American even that these type of decisions being made at the federal government level is going to impact them at the day level, whether it's through like prices of gasoline or the food in their grocery store and stuff like that. So there's a big price to pay for the average person versus at a national level. And I mean, that's scary for people, I think. And in, in, in a lot of cases, it's just like, sometimes you have to see that directly to really feel the need to make a change. So is that heat turned up enough after the last year or so to, you think, really make a move in regenerative agriculture and other kind of local uh, production type of stuff, or at least in or maybe national level independence of a lot of these things that are very needed, like food and shelter and things like that? Oh, absolutely. And I think anybody who's gone through a building project in the last 12 months can tell you that, you know, just the price of a two by four has, has gone up, what, four to five times. Um, no, that's building materials. Let's look at food, average beef prices, commodity beef prices. It has increased on average over 45%, you know, fruits, vegetables, everything like that. Now you can, we can all say we feel it when we pay at the pump, but really pay attention to that grocery bill and what's happened over the last, you know, 12 months. And those inflationary prices are up so, so high. So what happens in that traditional food supply is very similar to what we talked about earlier is you have all of these middlemen in that transaction that are taking a piece, uh, you know, taking a margin. Well, if we eliminate those and we recognize that our food supply should be domestic, it should be more intimate, we should have relationships with our ranchers and farmers, and we eliminate those middlemen, that inflationary cost all but goes away. And we've actually seen that, you know, we pay our ranchers more, we process the animal at our USDA processing facility, we ship directly to that consumer. And so a better quality grass-fed, grass-finished, regeneratively raised beef can get to a consumer cheaper than what they can go to the grocery store and buy commoditized, grain-finished, high omega-6 beef for. So right now, this is the great opportunity for us to recognize how important food is, not just not just in the domestic, you know, the gross domestic product, but how do we reset the food system so that people can eat healthier, provide a better lifestyle for our ranchers, and not have to worry about these massive inflationary costs. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, interesting times for sure. Um, other, the other question I kind of had around regenerative agriculture, I'm curious of what has changed, if anything, that was an interesting point uh, that I think Joel Salatin had shared with me, but it was uh, just the technology behind it because historically, you know, regenerative agriculture is essentially almost going back in time versus some new concept. It's like kind of working with the systems that, you know, kind of nature provides versus trying to have these, these inputs that are kind of one dimensional. 
uh, and ultimately lead to things like soil depletion and things like that. But uh, one thing that, that I think uh, Joel was sharing with me is like, there's, you know, you have these things like kind of where you interject the, the automation into something that otherwise would have been heavily manpowered things as simple as like, like you, what you mentioned before, like having your, your chicken coop get kind of rotated around is, are you seeing breakthroughs in that at the moment in terms of how, like how a rancher or farmer can implement more technology and make this process a little easier to do versus maybe like, like amplifying their, their, their ranch hand numbers in order to make this sort of thing happen? You know, that's a great question, Zach. Um, where I see the technology really kind of escalating in the, in the regenerative spaces is in the data collection. Um, so, so much of the regenerative argument prior to even the last couple of years was kind of hypothetical. It's like, well, we know this is how Mother Nature did it. We know this is the end result. But we didn't really have the quantifiable data to say, well, this is how much carbon we're sequestering. This is how, you know, this is the improvement in water infiltration or soil microbes or any of that. So I, I think really where the bulk of the technology is focused on right now is understanding those baseline metrics. So then we can start to craft technological implementations to see improvements in those. Um, and, and that's really the exciting part, right? Now we know you could see anecdotally what happened in like the Chihuahua desert with Alejandro based off of, you know, kiss the ground and what he was able to do. You can see what some of, you know, what, what Alan was able to do in Africa with some of those grasslands, we can see it, but then, you know, there is an element of society that wants to know like, what's the concrete data. And then they want to be able to compartmentalize it as like this regen beef is the same as taking, you know, X number of cars off the road. We're, we're, sometimes we're a simple people and that's good because that data becomes the, the movement in, in you know, the, that becomes the, the catalyst for a movement. Um, now, we do see a lot more of those, you know, like the mobile chicken farms or chicken coops, right? So those are some really cool pieces. And, you know, really, when you think about chickens, how poorly they're managed, you know, every chicken spends its life on an eight and a half by 11 in an 11 cage. That's a piece of paper. And, and you know, when we think about like this chicken's whole life is designed to produce eggs for us in that confined space, you know? Um, so these mobile chicken farms are great. It's, uh, you know, it's all about animal husbandry as well. And that's the regenerative movement is how are we providing the best natural life for our animals? Um, knowing full well that they are an integral part of the food supply chain or the food chain. So I, I am excited to see what we come up with in the technological space in the future. But right now it's really utilizing that tech to develop data sets that, that quantify how important and how essential regenerative agriculture is. Hey folks, just a quick reminder that this episode sponsors include Optimal Carnivore and Bioptimizers. Both these show sponsors are offering a 10% discount for listeners of the podcast. You can find details to that in the show notes or at zachbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. Yeah, interesting. I think like my, my last question that I have for like the regenerative side of things is just what type of movement, if any, if this is even an like an area of exploration do you see within getting like political awareness to it? Is there any push at like the federal or state or even local governments in terms of getting politicians aware of, you know, the potential value here and potentially creating incentives for farmers to head this direction? Absolutely. Um, now, the problem with politics is that, you know, there's always one side trying to vie for, you know, something or one side doing the other. So it's, uh, unfortunately, there's still a bipartisan debate on this one. But the, 
really when we take a step back and we look at the power of regenerative agriculture, pay American farmers more, reverse desertification, reverse climate change, provide healthier food for Americans and undo a lot of the health issues that we're dealing with. That's not a part of uh, that's not a political issue. That's like, OK, this is the biggest no brainer in history. Mm-hmm. Um, so we are seeing a lot of adoption at the federal level, at you know, more so at the local levels. But where we find the push is really going to come on the consumer side. And, and that's where I'm really hoping these podcasts or some of the, you know, the, the kiss the ground or any of these, you know, the, these media outlets that have focused on this inspire people to now shop most importantly with their wallets and buy regenerative. Cause once we, once that movement comes from the people side of things, the government's gonna, they won't have any choice, but to, to get behind it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and where, where we want government intervention, especially in regenerative, and I'm usually the last person to say the government should get involved, is really helping craft language that identifies what regenerative is. And that's probably, you've seen that, Zach, like you've had three people on your show. If you ask those three people what regenerative agriculture is, you're going to get three different answers. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and that's really one of the biggest challenges that regenerative faces. There's not this clear-cut definition of what it is. You know, and until we have that, until we have some simple language that can allow people to fundamentally understand what they're buying, we have some challenges. So I'm hoping that at a certain point, we kind of get a little more transparent on what that is. And the government really starts to help incentivize ranchers to make this transition. Um, And and we're seeing it, we just need to see it faster. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting, because it's like, the with with the government side of things, I mean, when you look at the consumer, like you mentioned, you sort of the situation where, I mean, the consumer votes with their dollar, but they also vote at the ballot box. So like, if you get the consumer engaged, you know, they're going to check two of those boxes. So it does seem like a very smart kind of area to target. The politicians will, you know, they'll follow suit if it becomes a big enough interest for the consumer slash voter. Yeah. And, and, you know, we, we have to recognize that right now in the political spectrum, there's, there's, it's such a tumultuous space. And even with what the, uh, you know, the, the Supreme Court did with the EPA just a couple of weeks ago, you know, it's it's not up to the government to fix these issues. And I think that we've seen such a tremendous lift from, you know, private corporations, from just private citizens really making these issues a priority. And the simple fact is, is just by eating, which every person has to do, we can now impact what happens on a global level. So, you know, politics aside is, is we highly encourage everybody is eat regeneratively, you know, you know, find those local farmers markets where, you know, farmers are growing regenerative products, you know, go online and research companies, you know, like ours, regenerative pastures that are raising regenerative beef, bison, pork, you know, lambs. Um, when we start to shop with our dollars, when we start to vote with our dollars, the government's not going to have any choice. And, and even if they try to do things that ultimately block this, it's the movement's going to happen, right? And, and we saw this with organic. We've seen this with everything else. And we know that companies like Whole Foods and General Mills have taken a position on regenerative. So now it's it's up to the rest of us to follow suit and make sure that we are, you know, ultimately just doing what's necessary to, uh, you know, to create an, an amazing world. Yeah. Didn't General Mills fund a big study on regenerative agriculture a while ago? Because they were kind of curious in terms of where they were sourcing some of their ingredients. Uh, I want to say it was I can't remember where it was from. I want to remember saying they were one of kind of the early like, surprises to me because I was thinking like, well, General, what does General Mills get into this for? But they they certainly see some some potential here if they're spending money on research, I would imagine. 
They are. And, and Whole Foods has done the same thing. You know, they, they've adamantly taken a position on this one. And, and we know that Whole Foods really becomes kind of the early adopter in some of these movements. And so, you know, we saw it early on with organic and how that trickled down to even your average grocery store. So just the fact that they're getting involved in it really, uh, I, I think, is a big confidence booster for the rest of us to know that this is a movement that's not going to go anywhere. And as we pointed out, the more that that data validates that regenerative sequesters more carbon, you know, helps provide all of these different environmental benefits as well as better food, you know, it, it really is a no-brainer. We, we talk a lot um, about the omega-6 to omega-3 ratio. And if we kind of go back in time, 100, 150 years, we can see that from this anthropological perspective, the healthy omega-6 to omega-3 was around four to one. But because of all of these grain inputs, especially in the cattle market, you know, we've got cows that have a 25, 50 to one ratio. And when we eat that cow, the amount of omega-6, that pro-inflammatory omega-6 goes way up. Now, we've tested our regenerative cows, and it's more in line with what it should have been 150 years ago, on average, about four to one. So now all of a sudden, these simple twists, these, these small things, you know, like shopping regeneratively for your beef now has a tremendous impact on our health outcomes. So, you know, when we look at the holistic picture of regenerative agriculture, it's not a single solution. It's an omni-channel approach to solving so many of the world's problems. Yeah. Yeah. It is interesting. I think like at this point in time, one of the big like kind of hurdles to get over is, is for a lot of people, maybe it's the price tag where like at this point, you're probably going to spend a little more for a regenerative uh, cut of beef versus something a little more conventional. I always wonder like where the non-regressive target would be for something like that. So like, and you can poke holes in this if, if you have them, but I was wondering, like, I wonder if you went from like, you addressed that situation from kind of the bottom where, you know, we have these systems in place already of like with food stamps and things like that. If there was a way to do like a two for one value for your food stamp dollar, if you purchased it on regenerative, or that's maybe where the government could move the needle with a population that otherwise would have a slightly larger hurdle to get over with that sort of thing. And then ultimately, if that demand gets high enough, you could have a situation where price points are kind of a little more in the ballpark of what people can, can afford on their own. Absolutely. That's a brilliant idea, right? Like, you know, that, that, cause, cause also you look at food stamps, right? Like what is the food that you're getting with food stamps? And it's usually not the healthiest. So if we can start to tackle some of the health concerns that come with a, you know, a lower socioeconomic uh, bracket, you know, that, that tremendous long-term benefit is, is clearly quantifiable. Um, but honestly, right now, when we look at the prices that you find at like regenerative pastures, they're cheaper than your commodity, you know, not really great beef right now. Um, and, and again, by virtue of that value chain optimization, we've been able to eliminate so many of those embedded costs in that supply chain. So, you know, it's you're going to get a really good box of beef for less than what it would cost you to go to the grocery store. Interesting. Is that a lot because of the price increases due to the supply chain stuff? Uh, or is that movement coming from regenerative prices coming down? Or is it a combination of both? Uh, it's a combination of both. And it's also a combination of, of our commitment to our mission, which is, you know, although we have to make money, we also recognize that if, if we can take it in the shorts a little bit for, you know, a couple of years um, and really get people moved over to regenerative products, then that movement's going to ultimately take care of itself and the, and the markets will stabilize to the point that it, it becomes more um, fiscally beneficial for all of us. Awesome. And this has been great. I love, uh, I love the regenerative t t topics and things like that, but I do want to kind of transition a little bit if, uh, if we can and touch a little bit more on just kind of the complete human approach that 
that you all have kind of going. Uh, the regenerative agriculture is a big side of that, I'm sure. But what other components are kind of like features of that that style and that advocacy that you that you have at Complete Human? I'm tagging out. I've, I've spoken <laughs> yeah, I so know, much. I know. I'm still here, everyone. <laughs> um, well, Complete Human was really based off of four pillars, which was physical health, spiritual abundance, planetary connection. And what was the last one? Mental fortitude. Mental fortitude, of course. I'm lacking that today, clearly. <laughs> um, so, you know, planetary connection and, and physical health, those are huge pillars on what we focus on here. So, you know, we knew that in order to truly make an impact, you know, sharing messages like this is always amazing, but like, how can we really, really help this industry and really promote it? And that's why we decided to really jump into this is because it does support our overall message of how to be a complete human. And obviously that is a never ending journey. We like the journey of a complete human is never complete. It's a, it's, it's a constant journey that we're always trying to strive for. Um, but obviously with physical health and planetary health as well, those are two extremely important pillars that we've based our companies on. And, and to that extent, uh, Zach, I, I think, you know, what we found early on in the complete human journey is we wanted to we wanted to change the world. I think all of us have this idea, especially, you know, like in this health and wellness space and what you do and what we do is we want to be ambassadors of change. And so these four pillars, which are not that much different than anybody else who's kind of in this space, a lot of people kind of, you know, connect with this idea that there's no silver bullet to ultimate health and wellness. Like we have to do certain things. And, you know, that's focusing on the mental, the physical, the, you know, the, the connection that we have with other people and what that means is, as far as the ecosystem that we live in. But we were, we were focused on things that are great, but the more that we learned about regenerative agriculture, like, well, yeah, plastics in the ocean are a big problem. Plastic straws are a huge problem, but that's like, we got to tackle, you know, A, B, and C before we mm -hmm. get to Z. And some of those other things that we were really excited about thinking they were making a difference ultimately are not going to have any impact until we can fix these foundational problems. So the complete human, you know, the whole ecosystem was, you know, how do we do all that? How do we create that education, that inspiration, give people the tools, you know, for mental fortitude, um, you know, give them the proper supplements, give them the proper food choices, teach them how to work out, why to work out. Um, and, and then, you know, help them understand that, all of these things, when put together, it's it's really the sum is or the whole is truly greater than the sum of its parts. Um, so that was that was the origins of what we did. You know, along the way, we we launched a supplement company. We decided to build a cryo tub and sell that. <laughs> oh, cool! <you> know, <laughs> we're we're gluttons for punishment, uh, uh, but it's uh, the ultimate goal for us. The mission for us has always been that to educate and inspire healthier people for a healthier planet. Mm -hmm. I did this I have, because I have an eight-year-old daughter and, and I can't continue to look at her and, and recognize that, you know, I couldn't do it. I couldn't look at her and recognize that I wasn't doing more for her future. So my, my mission is personal and, uh, you know, I, I want that mission to create a better world for her, but I also want my mission to create a better world for everybody. Mm -hmm. And, and honestly, that impact is more on this uh, foundational basis of food and planetary health, right? I mean, supplements and cryotubs are awesome, 
but those truly are our luxury items. Those are not absolutely necessary to have, to have a good, solid, healthy life. I mean, we, we love supplements. We take them, we use our cryo tub. We love that as well, but you know, we need to eat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> That's much more important. If the refrigerator is empty, we're not going to survive <laughs> cryotherapy and uh, <laughs> vitamin C. Yeah, exactly. if, if the fridge is empty, if, at best you're going to convert it into an ice chamber. <laughs> That's, <laughs> That's true. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we'll make another cryo tub. <laughs> the, yeah. No, I mean, you hit on a great point though. Cause I think like, when I think of just like foundational things, it's like thinking of things like, is your nutrition like set up in a way where you're built for success, where like what you're eating is sustainable to you and providing the right macro and micronutrients for what your goals are and your needs are at. And then like, are you physically challenging yourself in a way where you're making growth there, which I think bleeds right into the mental stuff. I mean, there's a lot of mental hard work with a lot of physical hard work. They kind of work together. Uh, and then ultimately sleep, like, you know, you got to recover from these sort of things and let your body bounce back and you, you get those three things taken care of. Then it's kind of fun to start looking into some of these other more like biohack type things like cold water immersion or heat stimulus. And some of that stuff comes along for the ride too. I think if you're, when you're training and things like that, but, uh, it's like you get those, those big pillars taken care of, and then start to kind of like get interested, use the, like the other things as a reward for kind of getting the other stuff in order. And that's probably going to be a sustainable way to kind of continue to enjoy that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that's a perfect example, right? Zach, like, you know, 80% of the U S population is considered overweight. So we're talking about like red light therapy helmets and, you know, how to use mm-hmm. photobiomodulation up your nose for, you know, for improving cognitive function, but how many people just need to know what to eat. Mm-hmm. And, and the other 20% of the people that might exist in the world that we play in who are looking at performance optimization, who are looking at for, you know, looking at, you know, stem cell therapy for longevity. Most of these people already know some of this stuff. So where I love the ability to have these high-level academic conversations about what's new in tech and how do we bio-optimize. You know, ultimately, we're only as strong as our weakest link, and and we can't begrudge the you know those eighty percent. We have to help them, and that comes with education. That comes with let's let's get back to basics. Let's eat healthier food. Let's move. Let's connect. Let's you know put down the iPhone and go for a walk around the block and. And then from there, go for a run around the block. And then from there, do a 5K or a marathon or an ultra marathon if you're crazy enough to do that. Uh, but <laughs> yeah. you know, it, it, we've got to get back to basics and, and regenerative is that, you know, um, what you do is, is that what we do is that it's, it's let's inspire that 80% of the people who are just struggling to, to get on a plan. Let's help them get there. And then we can all put on laser light helmets and, you know, take over the world from there. Yeah. Yeah. It's, there's, there's a lot of growth to be had at the, at the foundational level for sure. And uh, for, for the listeners though, who are like, okay, I checked off those foundational things. I'm ready to geek out with red lights and cold water immersion, heat exposure and things like that. CGI, CG, CGM monitors and all that sort of stuff. Have you guys played around with a lot of that stuff yourselves as you're kind of, I, you kind of have the foundational oh, yeah. stuff in place? Absolutely. Oh gosh. We've done everything from yeah cgms i mean we've done that multiple times to you know melatonin suppositories at night like like the weirdest stuff just to just trying all the things it's been it's been fun 
we, we were lucky enough, you know, at the beginning of COVID it, is we just outfitted the house as a complete bio-optimization haven. It was, you know, so, so the protocols in the morning were like uh, power plate to, you know, activate lymphatic drainage, then sauna, then cryo, then red light therapy, then PEMF. And then it was like, you know, monitoring everything from microbiome to, you know, glucose. And, and you know, it's like we tried it all. And, and it was what what COVID did, even for people who were, you know, already in that yeah was shine a light on well where do we need to be you know now we've got a real threat um and and what whether it's a massive real threat or you know the it was more based off of metabolic inflexibility or metabolic health it, it allowed us to focus on the things that we needed to focus on and then use those quantifiable data points to say are we really healthy because oftentimes you know and i think coming from the bodybuilding world the perception of health is a far cry from how healthy people are. So how do we use those data points to say, yeah, we're actually really healthy or well, no, we're not even close to healthy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's interesting when uh, it's a little bit of a tangent, but with the bodybuilding side of things, like I had a guest Ted Naiman on a while back and I was asking him about that. And he's like, you know, the interesting thing is with the bodybuilding community is the path to health is like they just kind of go past it where it's like they they do a lot of things right to get to a really optimal health spot and then it becomes like all right now i got to spend the next eight to 16 weeks sort of like uh like putting myself in a position where i'm like super lean past what any human could potentially like exist at for a long period of time and that's is like if we could just get the message of like all right, this is where you stop if you're not a bodybuilder <laughs> for the rest of the people. <laughs> and I always found that kind of interesting. It's like, oh yeah, you know, maybe we are throwing the baby out with the bathwater if we just look at bodybuilding in general as like this unhealthy, like obsession, which I mean, I'm sure it can be. And you guys would be able to tell me more about that than I'd be able to say. But um, it's just an interesting perspective. It's like sometimes it's just taking things a little too far versus stopping at the right time. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, it is a very like mentally, I mean, it, it was a, you know, when I got involved with it, it was a very exciting, new, fun thing. You're on stage, you're wearing sparkly things, you're tan, you look great. You were, did all this hard work. So fun. But ultimately what, you know, I'll speak for myself. I just found myself comparing my, how I look to other women. And I lived in my life like that for years. You know, I did multiple, multiple shows and that's not how we should live is, is, you know, you're, you're on stage to be compared to what other people look like. And then you are, you're graded, you're rated, you're rewarded for who looks the best. And like, what does that really do for your mental health? And that's why I kind of transitioned more into like a functional fitness thing. Cause then the, the excitement and the challenge was PRs and, you know, how much more weight can you squat or, you know, how much can I improve on this? And, you know, so it was a much more healthier transition, but yeah, the bodybuilding industry is wild. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it is wild. Yeah. It's interesting too, to think just like even outside of bodybuilding, it's just like the gamification of stuff, I think is where people get a little more consistent with staying the course. So like when I'm coaching runners and things like that, I think one of the biggest things we try to get over is they're picking a race like four, sometimes six months out. And that's super exciting. You're like, you're signing up, like maybe it's the first hundred mile you're going to run. It's going to be this big lifetime achievement type of thing. And you start out just like super excited about it, motivated, you're ready to go as hard as you need to. And as you kind of get further and further along the plan, if you just have that one end goal there, you have the situation where like that energy and that excitement that you motivation that you had originally starts to kind of fade and fade and fade and fade. Whereas if you structure it in a way where it's like, okay, this first four weeks, this is our goal that is may seem unrelated to the 
act of getting to from mile zero to mile hundred, but we're going to try to see the progress and gamify this for that. And then we move on to the next step and the next step. And by the time they get to the very end of it, when they're focusing on like the stuff that's going to be most specific to running a hundred miles, they've had so many little wins and exciting things along the way that kind of got built into the program that they're still excited. They're still really, really motivated to kind of keep doing the right things to get them in the right spot. So sometimes when I think of like, even, even something as simple as like cold water immersion, it's like, we need to give adults more kind of fun, active things to gamify and have fun with that's outside of sitting on the couch and watching Netflix or whatever mm-hmm. happens to be. And cause I mean, I had some friends over this last weekend and we had like, I think five or six of us just were doing three minute cycles in, in an ice bath. And it was just kind of fun to be out there. It's like, I mean, it, the ice bath was part of it, but it wasn't the entirety of it, but it all had us out there doing something that we thought was fun, exciting. And, uh, you know, it was, it was a good kind of like blending of, uh, community and, uh, a lifestyle thing that I think is healthy. Absolutely. And, and, you know, mental fortitude is something that, you know, we talk about and we kind of talk about it in the realm of what you just said, right. Is we use new year's resolutions as kind of this, this archetype for it, but you know, you go into the gym on January 2nd and it's packed. You can't get on a machine, yeah. but go back March 2nd and it's dead. It's only the same people that you saw in, you know, the, the latter part of the year. And why is that is, is that we, we haven't figured out a way for people to experience the joy in the process. So it's, you know, oh, I'm going to I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to end up looking like, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger or Ryan Reynolds or whoever. And it's like, well, we get frustrated when that doesn't happen after 48 hours. So, you know, a big part of the success that we're looking for in that optimal health and wellness journey is experiencing what you just said, Zach, is how do we make it? How do we experience the small wins? You know, and whether that's, you know, weight on a weekly basis or the way that your pants fit after a couple of weeks or, or things like that. It's like people need to understand it's like, you know, true health and wellness doesn't happen overnight. It's a lifelong pursuit. And in that lifestyle, we get to experience more of life than people who are just sitting on the couch watching other people live their lives through a box. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of online living nowadays too, because that opportunity is there if you want to take it. So I think just having the more and more opportunities to, to get out of the house and do something outside with other people is a huge win in a lot of cases, especially after, after the pandemic. Yeah. And, and, you know, like we, we try to make things more complicated than we are, right. It's and whether that's through expenses or just through the process, but I mean, running is a perfect, what do you need to run a buddy in a pair of shoes? Yeah. I mean, maybe some clothes just, you know, from the legal <laughs> side of things, but you know, like you know, put, put on a pair of shorts, a pair of shoes and go run. It's like, what could be simpler than that? Yeah. Yeah. There's not a huge barrier to entry with that for sure. And, you know, sometimes it's just kind of getting the message out that there's opportunities and making sure you're being open to people who are new to it and kind of helping them kind of get started, which is, a, you know, always kind of a fun side to running too. And, um, one thing, I, one question I want to, I feel like I always want to ask people who've worn continuous glucose monitors is like, did you find anything like that was just like super surprising to you where it was, oh, I thought this was a healthy food item for me because maybe at a population level, it scores well, but it was like just off the charts, like a blood sugar spike for use personally. Gosh, I know it is interesting because well, we live together and, and so we would eat the same dinners and stuff. And I, I remember one night we had, it was like a, some sort of chili with like rice and beans and other things like that. And I think yours stayed fine mm-hmm. and mine went up like crazy 
And it was like, we eat the exact same things, but we respond differently. And the same thing with, I remember one morning I had like a huge bowl of oatmeal and I put banana in there and honey and like just all carbs and sugar, right? Like the whole thing. And it was completely stable. And so you would assume that, I mean, you know, they talk about, um, like the impacts on blood sugar with a lot of foods, there's charts online you can see, and it's like, Oh, you know, this is more than that. But really ultimately we all respond so differently. And I think that's really what people probably should be more mindful of is that we all have different reactions to different foods and it's good to, to know what those are. Um, I looked at it more as just like kind of interesting information to know. I, I didn't like obsess over it or anything. And I've actually kind of changed my diet more to a more nose to tail diet, eliminating seed oils and processed sugars and focusing more on that. So I actually have not worn a CGM since I've changed my diet. I would be curious to see what that's like um, after taking out, um, especially like the seed oils too, and just seeing if that had any sort of correlation. But we do eat a lot more fruit now. And I feel like probably with the fiber and just kind of how the body processes fruit, I feel like it would probably be a lot better than if it were to be like cupcakes or something, right? Sure, yeah. Yeah. So it is, it is fascinating, but I do think it, it, it is different for each person. Bananas were my Achilles heel. Yeah. Like, and that's what I was going to say is him. It was like totally spiked like crazy. And mm-hmm. it, but it wasn't just a little bit, it would be like a, a normal, you know, 70. And then I'd eat a banana and within 10 minutes, I'm like 150. And, yeah. and you know, so, but we, we, we've always talked about metabolic flexibility as kind of that's where we need to be aiming for. That's the puck. That's that's the the target that we need to be focusing on. So it's not this recognition that carbs are bad. It's are we metabolically healthy enough, metabolically flex, flexible enough to you know allow our body to burn fat when we're at rest and to burn carbohydrates when we're active, and then start to pair our food intake accordingly. Um, you know, I, I think keto has really done a horrible job um, at creating this concept in the, in the psyche of the American about what's healthy and what's not, you know, ultimately we need carbohydrates to live. Our brain runs off of glucose. We need to, if, if we're going to be an active individual, you can't run a hundred miles on a keto diet. Maybe you have, but that just seems like a recipe for disaster. Um, at a certain point we need, we need carbohydrates and if they're healthy carbs and we are metabolically healthy, metabolically flexible, it's not the end of the world. We're not going to become insulin, uh, you know, resistant because of it. Some mm-hmm. of the things I've, I've heard as well is that the blood sugar spikes are, are not bad. It's, it's natural to have these spikes in your blood sugar. What, what you want though, is for it to come down in a reasonable manner. If it just stays elevated after eating something, that's something that's more concerning, which I think is more indicative of uh, metabolic inflexibility. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Those excursions that stay up there or kind of start to come down, but then have a second peak. I've, I've always been told are kind of the ones to kind of watch out for and um, the, t- the two things that I thought were really interesting when wearing a continuing continuous glucose monitor was one, the level that sleep impacted it. I had, uh, mm-hmm. I didn't do this intentionally, but I was wearing one. And then one night I was, I just, I slept like three hours and that next day I pretty much followed the same nutrition that I would normally be eating for the most part. And I had a couple like excursions that were just massively higher than they normally would have been. And, uh, I was talking to someone who was like more knowledgeable about CGMs and things like that. And they were saying, yeah, that might've been just like the sleep side of things, how much that impacts, even the way your body responds to nutrition. And then the other one was, I would sometimes have different responses depending on the time of day. So like, and some of this might be unique to me in the sense that like now for the better part of the last, like 
decade plus I've been doing like the primary workout usually in the morning. So like my body may have just gotten so adjusted to like the, the, the training side of the equation where my, it just responds to exogenous carbohydrate differently than it would if I was living a different lifestyle. But I would have like, I notice I'd get bigger excursions with carbohydrate in the morning than if I'd had that exact same thing at dinner that night, which I found was really kind of an interesting dynamic. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the beauty of these things, right? Like, you know, it's like the N of one is still the most powerful. And, you know, that, that we've always encouraged people. It's like, take these data points and then build your lifestyle around them. You just found out like, you know, if I work out in the morning, this makes more sense. If I work out in the afternoon, this makes more sense. But our lifestyles and the technology that we have now give us that really unique opportunity to, you know, to bio-optimize, to biohack, if you want to call it that. But, you know, like, we, we now have data. That's the coolest thing in the world. And, and what works for Jana doesn't work for me, which isn't going to work for you. So, you know, we shouldn't be trying to force people into these cookie cutter molds of this diet and this exercise regimen. It's like, there's so many options out there. Find what works best for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's been one of the more exciting experiences I've had with ultra marathon running. Cause it is a sport that is like relatively unresearched compared to most sports. So there is a bit of just like kind of troubleshooting your own specific setup as well as like interacting with other people who've done it and then leaning on the small amount of research we do have to maybe create some starting points and things. And, you know, for me to kind of go back to like what you were talking about before with like ketogenic diets and things like that, I, I tried to do a ketogenic diet. I shouldn't say tried. I, I experimented with a ketogenic diet, like in an off season and had some pretty good responses to it. But then once I started kind of structuring my training again and preparing I realized like a strict ketogenic diet by the definition of like 50 grams of carbohydrates or less, uh, just wasn't going to be optimal for me for performance. So I was like, well, what's the next step here? So it was like, I was at this point where it's like, do you go completely back to moderate high carbohydrate or do I play around with some carbohydrate and see if that lets me kind of have a little bit of the best of both worlds. And, and I probably benefit from, you know, hundred mile races are so long, the intensity comes down, you can lead, lean on fat oxidation a little heavier. But ultimately what I learned was like, as my lifestyle would change throughout a buildup, like if I'm focusing on short intervals or long intervals or long run development, each of those different phases are a different kind of macronutrient ratio or profile for me and finding out like which one of those pieces matched which profile was one of the kind of the coolest, uh, like self experiments. I think I've probably done over the years with, with running as far as I do. Well, and, and I think that this is kind of cool Zach, cause you know, as a high performance athlete, you get, you, you get so in tune with your body. So you know what works and what doesn't. And this is one of the things that we've heard so many times, I think out and working with people and, you know, just the, the messages that we get is that I'm so sick and tired of being sick and tired. So people don't even understand what, their body needs. And, and as we put them on these, these small win paths to better health and wellness, now we really get to understand what our body is doing and, and what works. And I mean, yeah, it's like, you might have some variation of a, of a keto or something like that, that, that gives you the best performance. She might have something else. I might have something else like keto. My body just flat out rejects. Like I love carbohydrates and I actually function really well on them. So like on the couple of times I've tried to go keto and like, I get 
two weeks into it. And I'm like, I'm just going to kill myself. You're, <laughs> you're also Italian. And that's a good part of it. Like when we look at microbiome and we look at some of the genetic components of this, like our, our bodies do remember what our ancestors did. Like my family, my ancestors grew up on pasta and bread. Like that's, you mm-hmm. know, like for me to just go cheese and bacon, it's like, no, that's yeah. not going to work. <laughs> not that that's a keto diet, but. Right. No, but it is interesting. I mean, I see that. I think that's where coaching kind of was a really an, an interesting uh, like data set for me was, you know, I'd get a variety of clients coming in with all sorts of different dietary approaches from strict ketogenic to very high carbohydrate and just seeing like how they responded differently was, is, is always eye opening to me. And, and sometimes I'll get folks who uh, they're, they're coming in and they're kind of like, well, this is what I'm eating. And I'll look at it and I'll be like, okay, so you're, you're pretty close to strict keto. I'm going to, we should maybe add a little more carbohydrate here and there. And they're they're for whatever reason, their goal is no, I'm going to stay strict and they nail their workouts. And then I have other folks where it's like, they're, I'm going to try it. I'm going to go low carb and we're going to, you know, I'm just going to do exactly what you tell me to. And we end up walking them right back up to moderate high carb sometimes. And they just find like, well, that's where their sweet spot is. That's where they're able to digest enough food during the race to be able to have a moderate to high carbohydrate diet without getting digestive issues. And they feel more energetic that way. And I got other folks that are a little more lower carb that are just, they find that that helps them kind of manage their energy levels during these long races without having to kind of fuel to a larger extent, like their moderate high carb counterpoints. And it's just really fascinating to kind of see that range. Yeah. It's that end of one. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I, you know, and, and it's interesting when we talk about diets and I'm kind of going to go off into left field on this, but <laughs> I don't think that we value protein enough. And as we look at, as we look at the aging equation, right, sarcopenia or muscle protein breakdown really is something that I think could be prevented with a, with better protein consumption, better quality protein. And so, so even from an athletic performance side is how are we fueling with protein and what, you know, what element of our diet is is incorporating that macronutrient. But, you know, one of the things that I think we found, especially since, you know, kind of getting involved in this business is we're consuming a lot more protein and workouts are better. Strength is up, um, you know, baseline data, testosterone levels, cholesterol, like all of these different things. And, you know, I grew up in this family where it's like, oh, like red meat is going to increase your cholesterol. Yeah. Conventional red meat will, but if we go regenerative, it doesn't. And so, you know, like really understanding the role of protein and good quality protein in, in a diet is kind of an essential part, whether you're training for an ultra marathon or you just want to live a healthier existence. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of moving parts and it's fun to kind of dive into all of them. <laughs> yeah, we geek out on this all the time, all day, <laughs> all day long. Like our conversations around the dinner table are. <laughs> it's, it's a podcast episode. I'm sure you probably wonder like at what point do you just record everything and then turn it into episodes when something fun comes up. <laughs> we say that all the time too. Oh, we should have recorded that. We do, yeah. but do you, do you have this issue, Zach? Because we've done that. Like we'll, we'll have that idea and then we have this amazing conversation and then we go to record the podcast. It's like the original conversation was better. It wasn't yeah. as good as I remember it. <laughs> it's it's impossible to replicate the the authenticity of just like it coming a natural, I think. And that's mm-hmm. where that's where I think you see the the value in some of those kind of like in-person podcast episodes, especially when it's like people who have maybe never met before or know uh, know something about the other person, but not a ton. And then they get into kind of a really cool conversation that creates a dynamic where both are kind of thinking a little bit on the fly. And it just feels, it feels more like as a listener, I think that you're like in the conversation passively versus just throwing your headphones on and listen to two people talk about academic stuff. And 
I find that really interesting. The diff because now the now that podcast has got gotten so big, you get such a variety of different types and styles and things, and uh, it's kind of fun to kind of look at which ones kind of sit differently with the with what you're looking for. Totally, absolutely. Awesome. Well, I mean, I think we've, we've touched on a lot of stuff. Uh, we can, we can touch on more if you have something you want to want to chat about, but if not, um, we can let the listeners know where they can find you guys and what you're all up to. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, originally we talked about regenerative pastures. So regenerativepastures.com is our website, uh, where you can check out all of our meats and organs and organ jerky, which is exciting. That's actually a huge hit. We didn't even touch on organ meats really here, but um, obviously there's a ton of nutritional benefit there and our organ jerky is just flying off the shelf. <laughs> it's pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah. Quick sidebar. You guys sent me some of the jerky and I was at, you know what I was doing? I was like cooking up like a stir fry with just whatever meat that I had with it. And then I would sprinkle the organ organ jerky on top of it too. And it blended in there right real nicely. So that's, that's a, good cool. idea. <laughs> was it, a good idea. Was it the, or the, um, the liver or the heart? What did you use? The liver? I'm pretty sure. Okay. Yeah. It's like, it yeah. was kind of like the organ meat bacon bit version. <laughs> yeah. That's a great idea. That's a fantastic. I didn't even think about like, that's a great recipe too. We should might need to steal that from you. Zach. Yeah, go for that's it. A, yeah. <laughs> that's a good one. Organ jerky stir fry. Yeah. I love that. That's so great. And then, uh, you know, we, we mentioned complete human a couple times. Um, Completehuman.com is a digital content platform where we have articles and blogs on like a variety of topics, all within the pillars that we discussed, as well as our podcast. And, you know, we mentioned cryotubs and supplements. We've got a whole host of information and, you know, products there if people feel like they want to check them out. Yeah. Uh, did, is, there, is there anything else? You can catch us on social. Uh, yeah. Instagram, Facebook. You can do TikTok. I'm not, I refuse. <laughs> <laughs> I hear TikTok's getting canceled in the US eventually anyway. <laughs> really? Oh. No, I don't know. I just, uh, oh, okay. I, that's always kind of a, a topic that comes up. I'm not sure if there's any actual evidence behind it or not. You know, we've heard TikTok is pretty powerful these days. However, yeah. I'm a little, I have some feelings about additional social medias just because honestly, I feel like one social media is enough. Do we really need like eight different handles for eight different things? I understand the value of all of them. So I'm not saying it's horrible, but it's just a lot to manage. <laughs> mm -hmm. I don't dance for the camera. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, I'll definitely put the links to all that stuff in the show notes. So the listeners can click over there and check out what you're up to and check out some of the regenerative stuff if interested, but thanks a bunch for, for the time you both are more than welcome to come back on at any point. If you have anything that you want to share or any updates along the regenerative side of things. Absolutely. We'd love to get you on the complete human show. We'll, uh, yeah. Yeah. Amplify our up. messages. It'll be fun. So good. Awesome. Thanks. Zach, it was so great to meet you. Thank you for having us on. Likewise. Yeah. Take care. Thank you. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. Hey, folks, thanks for checking out this episode of the podcast. For those of you who are regular listeners, you'll likely know I'm also a professional endurance athlete and coach. If you're looking for a little extra help with your training and programming, I do offer individualized coaching options where you can work directly with me one-on-one. -on -one. I'll personalize your plan and even scale it up to email collaboration and regular consultations. You can also access either of those on their own if you just want to contact me as you're navigating your fitness journey. I also have some ready-made plans. The ready-made plans follow my coaching philosophy and they scale from five kilometers 
all the way up to 100 miles and come in three different levels. So whether you're a beginner, intermediate, or advanced, I've got something for you there. And most recently, I also just added a Strength Athletes Guide to Endurance program, which will help someone who is primarily a strength athlete who wants to either do an endurance event for the fun of it, bolster up their cardiovascular fitness, or just try something out, try something new. So those programs are built to be able to supplement a strength program so you won't have to give up on your gains in the gym while you're going after some running or endurance-related fitness goals. You can find all those things on my website at zackbitter.com. Thanks for checking out this episode.